This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, Rachel and I will be talking with Shane Lubb, Technical Director with the Applied Structural Dynamics team at Motioneering Inc., which is part of the RWDI group of companies about the structural dynamics in modern construction, focusing on some of the technologies such as tube mass dampers and their application in structures from bridges to skyscrapers. I'm your co-host, Matt Cardle. And I'm your co-host, Rachel Holland. Now let's jump into the conversation of the week. Shane, welcome to the show and uh, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are now to specialize in uh, the motion control structures? So I started my engineering education at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, which is about an hour outside of Toronto. I studied civil structural engineering. And for one of my summer jobs, I worked in a research lab for one of the professors there, Dr. Mike Tate. And he happened to be researching structural control and structural dynamics. And I was working with a few of his graduate students. And this was a whole new field that was open to me. I had no idea that this topic even existed. And I had a lot of fun with it. And so after a couple of years working as kind of an undergraduate research assistant with him, after I completed my undergrad, I went straight into grad school working with him again. And uh, four years later, I had a PhD in the field of structural dynamics and structural control. And then I was fortunate in that uh, just down the road, well, 45 minutes down the road, there was this company, RWDI slash Motioneering, that happened to specialize in structural dynamics and structural control. So I got hired there and I've been here for over 10 years now. You said like, I didn't even know it existed. Could you like back it up a little bit and maybe just explain to our listeners what Motioneering is and like that area of expertise? I can talk a little bit about Motioneering and, and RWDI because they're kind of linked companies. So they're two companies, they're sister companies. They specialize in kind of a unique field. So RWDI does a broad range of consulting services, but where the interest for me lies is in their wind engineering field. So they have a number of wind tunnels. And basically in these wind tunnels, you can build models of buildings or bridges, and you can basically test them to see how do they respond to the wind, right? So we can hit them with wind and we can see what are the wind loads on these structures or what are the wind motion of these structures. And this information can be provided to a structural engineer and he or she can work through and make sure that the structure satisfies the strengths design. And now kind of related to that, when we find that the motion of these structures is, is too great, that's where motioneering gets involved. It was once a department within RWDI and they specialized in how do we solve motion control issues, right? The structure's moving too much. What do we do? Well, we can go to the motioneering team and they specialize in structural control, designing and 
uh, sometimes fabricating devices that will reduce the motion of structures. And so these are pretty interesting niche fields. They're unique companies. RWDI gets to boast that of the 20 tallest buildings in the world today, they did the wind engineering. They're wind tunnel tested, 16 of them in RWDI's wind tunnel. So it's quite a unique field and quite interesting and, and structural dynamics is, uh, is quite exciting. With the regards to the structural dynamics, it seems that you're referring to the projects, like this isn't your typical building code design. This is when the design isn't working. We got a high rise or we have a bridge or there's some vibration structural dynamics issue that we can't solve right off the top of our typical design. This is kind of when we have to get into the real testing, right? That's where motioneering comes in, technologies that you can use, uh, dampers, uh, and we can talk about the different types of technology, but it seems that's where motioneering comes in. And that sounds like really cool engineering, right? Yeah, that's right. It's quite unique. And you're right. A lot of the projects we're using, you can't go to the code and figure out what to do. A lot of the times, you know, when you're designing a high rise building or long span bridges, it's required that you have to basically go and, and do wind tunnel testing do some pretty advanced dynamic simulation to determine what the loads are going to be. If you were to go to a code, it's not going to necessarily give you a reliable answer. It might be extra conservative. And that's, of course, no good because that results in a lot of additional costs for the owners, for the project team, or in some cases, it might end up not being conservative enough. You know, it's actually under design. You know, a classic example would be the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, right? Where there's a video from the 1940s of during modest wind events, it wasn't like hurricane level winds. This bridge went into some sort of dynamic response and there was large visible motion and that eventually led to the failure of that structure. So it's kind of an important topic and that's why bridges are almost all cable stayed flexible bridges nowadays, long span tend to be tested in a wind tunnel to make sure we don't get those sorts of failures or those sorts of excessive motion issues anymore. If I understood this correctly, RWDI has the wind tunnel facility, like an actual sort of test thing, or is it all like FEA sort of style thing where it's done on a computer and like simulated? Generally, it's tested in the wind tunnel. So we have some ability to do some numerical modeling of how the structure is going to respond. But most of the time, you're physically building a model and putting it in the wind tunnel. So all around the office, you're going to see models of bridges and you can Bridges are often what we call aeroelastic models, meaning you can touch them and they'll bounce around and the deck will bounce up and down. And so you can actually put it in the wind tunnel and you'll physically see parts of the bridge moving around. Now for uh, tall buildings, we build replicas of the buildings as well. And you build up the built environment around it. So we've got like models of downtown New York City so that we have our little study model typically in the center of this urban environment, you hit it with wind. And of course, the wind hits the buildings all around it, generates the proper gusts. And then we're measuring the forces that are applied to the building that we're studying and that's of interest. And we can then kind of pull together all that information from all these measurements and predict out what the basically loads are going to be on the structure and what the acceleration at the top of the structure is going to feel like for the occupants up there as well. What do you typically build the scale? Like, what's the scale? Typically, it depends often, like for a building, it'd be something like one to 400. They're obviously a lot smaller, but it depends on what we're looking at. You know, sometimes 
for bridges, we'll build them at larger scale, maybe one to 100, one to 50. It depends what we're looking at, but it's generally quite a reduced scale, obviously, because there's only so much you can fit in the wind tunnel. What kind of challenges does the structural motion present? And like, how does it impact the integrity of the buildings and, and bridges? Obviously, failure is the ultimate thing we want to avoid. So we have the example of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge where there was a lot of motion and eventually that st structure collapsed. So that's something we want to avoid. But uh, generally, you don't have those issues, right? You don't see those sorts of things in the news. What tends to actually govern the design of these structures isn't like the ultimate design level where the hurricane's blowing in, blowing through town. Like most of the buildings, we high-rise buildings we work on in New York that have issues with wind, it's actually a motion like comfort issue. So it's serviceability. So in other words, you can imagine you're at the top of this high-rise building, the wind comes and it's oscillating back and forth. Often it's the person in the top of the penthouse, he can feel the motion of that floor. And that's what we're trying to control to make sure that, you know, they're not annoyed. People living at the tops of these buildings aren't annoyed because they can feel the floor underneath them moving. We're actually quite sensitive to the motion of floor, like particularly laterally. Most people can begin to feel motion at around five millige. So that's five one thousandths of gravitational acceleration. So we're quite sensitive. So you can just feel it. It doesn't necessarily mean you're objecting to it but you can feel it. And of course, at higher levels, at maybe 10 millige, people start to get annoyed, like my apartment's moving around, that's annoying. And then higher, well, you know, at like 20 millige, people start to, if you're walking across the floor, you'll actually feel like, whoa, like you need to adjust your gait and adjust your feet to maintain your balance because the floor is moving so much. So we want to avoid those problems. There's other problems like down in the lower portion of the building. So that's at the top, but down typically in like the lower third of the building, if the building's flexing back and forth, of course, that's putting strain in the building, particularly down at the base. And you can get creaking and groaning as parts of the building are flexing. Partitions and studs, for example, can flex, and that causes creaking and groaning, and people don't like that. And then another issue that we're seeing more and more uh, frequently is actually elevator functionality. So you can imagine you have a tall building with a tall elevator shaft, right? And this shaft could be like 300 meters tall, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet. And then the shaft is moving up and down an elevator cab and you've got cables, hoist cables coming off the top and then compensator cables actually coming off the bottom. And you can maybe imagine if you've got a, a cable that's 200 meters long and you start oscillating the top of it because it's up near the top of the building, well, you've got these waves forming in these cables and they can get pretty large amplitudes and can start to smack against the inside of the elevator shaft. And that causes people to be concerned, like what's that whipping noise I'm hearing? And in extreme examples, we've actually seen multiple cables get tangled around each other in the shaft. And then you go over a sheave or a pulley at the bottom or at the top of the elevator shaft, and it pops off the pulley. And then, of course, you got elevator downtime and you need to affect the repair. And so that's a problem. So there are a number of issues that aren't just like failure, but are more serviceability issues that are generally governing a lot of the design of these tall and slender structures. So in that scenario with the elevator, which makes me want to never take an elevator in a long in a tall building again, is the solution just to have one elevator that only goes so much and then you have to get off and go to another elevator? Or like, how do you deal with that? So sometimes that's how they naturally design the elevators. This is the elevator design is not my specialty, but they'll break it up into different banks. So you do just naturally have limited heights, which is good. 
There's also elevator uh, consultants out there and elevator designers will actually design their cars actually on a windy day. They'll actually slow the speed of the elevator cars down. So you might notice that on a windy day, it takes longer for you to get from the first floor to the 50th floor. In extreme cases, they'll actually park a car and they'll say, you know what, the wind's moving too much so or blowing too much or we got too much motion. So they'll park a car at a certain level where they determine that that's going to result in the least amount of cable motion. But this is why generally these things are designed so you shouldn't be too concerned about getting trapped in an elevator or something like that. But it's just one of the problems that engineers need to uh, sort through. Yeah, it seems like it has a whole bunch of problems that aren't really structural, but to the clients and to the users of the building. Yeah, it just reminds me of the rich person that buys a, a penthouse and that they're just nauseous all the time because the building's moving too much. So you explain these problems such as serviceability and motion. One thing that comes to mind are bridges too. I remember one example where the soldiers have to break up their steps when they're crossing a bridge. Is that something that's related to? And we got these issues what are the technologies or solutions that you typically come up with for those? That's kind of where the field of structural control comes in. And, you know, I work for motioneering and we specialize in structural control. And it's a field that's been around for some time, you know, for over a hundred years, you can go back and find kind of the early implementations of structural control. And it's a broad field, but I'll say I'll narrow it down to kind of what I deal with the most in, in bridges and, and buildings. And that is we typically are trying to increase the damping in these structures. So the way I like to describe damping is to maybe picture like a car. So you've got a car and you hit a bump in the road, a speed bump or a pothole, and the car will bounce and then it'll quickly come to rest. And so what's going on, of course, is you have this car, it's this mass and it can bounce up and down because you have suspension, you have springs that compress, but also in there is basically a shock absorber. And the intent of that shock absorber is to basically remove energy from that system. So your car is bouncing up and down, there's kinetic energy, and then you're stroking these shock absorbers that are there to basically prevent the car from bouncing forever. As you travel down the road for miles, you're no longer bouncing. It damps out that oscillation quite quickly. And so that technology has been around, obviously, for decades and decades in, in mechanical engineering. And then it started to being, be brought into civil structural engineering, probably at a later date. I mean, some of the, the key developments, I guess, in the implementation of this technology in uh, tall buildings, for example, we could go back probably to the original World Trade Center towers, right? So they're tall structures and they were sensitive potentially to the wind-induced motion. And so actually they installed thousands of these little viscoelastic connections or little viscoelastic dampers all through them at connections between columns and kind of the floors. And so you can imagine this material is sandwiched there. And anytime the building flexes at the joints, you have a little bit of kind of motion between them. You're kind of stroking or straining this viscoelastic material. And that's acting kind of like your shock absorber, right? It's dissipating a certain amount of energy. And so that was back in about the 1960s, I suppose. And then the 1970s, we started to see some of the early tune mass dampers installed in buildings. So there was a couple installed, one in Boston, one in New York, I can think of in the United States. And then a few years after that, well, in the 1980s and 1990s in Japan, they started to install tune liquid or tune sloshing dampers in some of their air traffic control towers, observation towers, even a few tall buildings. And they're basically using tanks of water to control the motion of these slender and flexible structures. And then the big change I would say happened in structural control technology at around, well, the early 2000s with the design of Taipei 101, which was then the tallest building in the world. 
And what they did that was novel is they installed a tune mass damper that's around 600 tons, and they made it a feature of the building, right? You can literally, to this day, you can go there, you can pay your money, you can go up to the observation deck, and you can see this tune mass damper. It's a giant 600-odd ton steel ball, painted gold. The entire thing is made to be architecturally pleasing. And that was a change because prior to, I would say, that damper and kind of the fame it got, I mean, if you were to Google tune mass damper today and go to like do an image search, you're probably going to see an image of the Taipei 101 tune mass damper. But prior to that project, if structural engineers or design teams found that, yeah, our building has a, a problem with motion, they'd say, oh, no, the building's broken. Well, no, no, you could put a damper in it no, no, we don't want a tune mass damper because our building doesn't work. We need to go back to the drawing board and, and make some changes to make the structure work without a damper. And after that project and kind of the fame it got, all of a sudden, oh, our building has high accelerations. Well, no problem. We're just going to solve it using some sort of damping system. And so now in New York, it's assumed that, oh, we have a tall building. We're probably going to need a damper in it. And so that's how we're going to solve the motion control issue. And since around Taipei 101, 20 years ago or so, you know, I could name over 100 projects we've worked on installing damping system that are either complete or under construction for tall buildings around the world. So it's becoming a lot more popular and a lot more accepted as technology to make these structures more livable. Taipei 101, I remember seeing a documentary of that when I was a pre-engineer. That was one of the buildings or the documentaries that I saw that made me want to get into structural engineering. It was I know the two mass damper, yeah, these problems that you don't know that they have, these buildings have, and how are you going to solve that to do the tallest building in the world at that time? And that was one of the coolest things that I've saw. And after I became an engineer, I visited Taipei 101, and it was really cool to see that up in person. I was nerding out the whole time. But even from a business perspective, too, what was cool about it was what you said, they put it on display, and they essentially made that structural feature that most buildings, I guess, would want to hide, but because, yeah, they don't want to see it. But this, it was really cool. You go up there, it's an attraction. It's, you pay to take the elevator to go see it. And it's a tourist attraction. And they even had uh, figurines. Of, they made like damper babies. A mascot, right? Yes, damper babies. Absolutely. Yeah, mascot. They were just monetizing it, which was really cool because that's one way it was, yeah, let's not hide the structure. Let's show it off and for the client and for the make it a moneymaker uh, in terms of, of showing off the structural features of the project. So that was really cool. I'm glad that that was one of the things that, that got me into it. That was before my time, but that was one of the first big tune mass dampers that Motioneering did. And in fact, right now our, our logo is basically meant to represent the Taipei 101 damper. Just the, the form of it is meant to kind of replicate that just because it was one of our first big projects where we designed and, and fabricated this damper. It's a big deal for us as well as a company. Yeah, I haven't done really like any high-rise buildings. So this is the, you said it was a tuned mass damper and a, a tuned sloshing damper. Those sound, they're just really fascinating to me. And I'm curious if you could explain how they work to help like minimize that movement. Both systems are kind of similar if you were to break them down. So if we just start with uh, describing a, a tune mass damper, and we can talk about the Taipei 101 damper since we love it so much. But basically, you can imagine the wind comes along and the wind hits a building. 
and the building begins to sway back and forth. And generally at the top of the building, like at the Type A 101 damper at the top, is a 600-some-odd-ton steel ball, and it's suspended from cables, so it's a pendulum. And we select the right cable length so that the frequency at which that building is moving back and forth is pretty close to the frequency at which the cable or that pendulum is swaying back and forth. And so the wind hits the building, the building starts to oscillate back and forth, and then this damper, this ball that's at the top, suspended, it begins to swing back and forth, except the TMD, it's going to lag behind the motion of the tower. And so constantly, it's basically trying to pull the tower back to kind of its neutral position. It's basically applying its inertial forces that's opposing the wind loads that are being applied to that building. So a a tuned sloshing damper seems a lot different, but it works under the same principles where now we have a tank of water. And when I say tank, it's not like a little fish tank. You know, these could be 30, 40, 50 feet long. They might be 20, 30 feet wide and 5, 10 feet deep, you know, so they're pretty big. But we select the proper tank length and water depth so that the natural sloshing frequency, and sloshing is the technical term, the rate at which that water, that wave action occurs in the tank is close to the frequency of the building. So again, the wind hits the building, the building begins to sway back and forth, and this tank or tanks at the top of the building it begins to slosh, except the sloshing water is going to lag behind the motion of the tower. So the waves are constantly applying forces that are resisting those wind loads. And so these dampers, you know, they seem like they're pretty big, 600 tons. And, you know, they're not small, but damper in New York City or really anywhere around the world is generally for a tall building on the order of a couple hundred tons to some of the biggest ones we've done are around 1,200 tons. So they're large masses, but it's generally less than 1% of the total gravity load of the structure. I mean, so it's kind of trivial in the grand scheme of things. It's just locally, it's a fairly sizable mass. But with these masses, we can get a 30, 40, 50, sometimes 60% reduction in the motion of the tower. So you can get a quite a significant reduction just by, you know, throwing a few hundred tons or maybe a thousand tons of mass up there and, and carefully designing it so it can move properly. What do they make those out of? Well, obviously the water one for the sloshing, but the other one. So generally it's out of steel. You know, it's fairly dense and I want to say relatively affordable. Sometimes it's a steel box that's concrete filled. Just if you have this space, obviously concrete's a lot less dense than steel. So you require a larger volume. And usually we're tight for space at the top of the building. So most often there's steel. Sometimes if you need, if you got special applications where you have like a really tight space and like a floor, we have done lead filled ones again, where their lead's obviously quite a bit denser than steel, but it's more expensive. So usually it's steel. I would say most of the time, sometimes concrete mixed with it. The project owner or whatever, will they hire your firm as like a specialty engineering consultant separate from the structural engineer just to do that wind analysis and then also design that damping system? Generally, RWDI does the wind analysis. So RWDI is hired by uh, the owner or structural engineer or architect, depends, but they're hired. They'll determine how much motion or what the wind loads are going to be. And if there's found to be a motion issue, then motioneering can be brought in and we will say, hey, these are the solutions that might work. Usually people want to use a tuned sloshing damper if they have the space for it, if they can make it work, just because the tuned sloshing damper, it's a concrete tank with waterproofing and some obstructions in there to cause drag or damping. So they're like one third the cost of a tuned mass damper. And we go to a tuned mass damper, 
if you have a fairly confined space, you just need to hit a lot of mass at the top of that building. You don't have a lot of room. So they would hire us. We would say, these are your options. And maybe there's only one option because it tunes sloshing dampers off the table. And then we could do the design of the damper as well. Here's the load that's going to produce. Here's the performance you're going to get out of it. Like here's what the reduced accelerations of the building will be. In some cases, a lot of cases now, uh, we can actually do the supply of a tune mass damper as well. Why do they call it uh, tuned? Is that automation with computers or where does the tuned come in? So there's no automation. It's completely what we call what, what's called a passive system. So when the building moves, it responds. It doesn't have anything to plug in or anything like that. It's called tuned because one of the critical things is the building wants to move at a certain period or certain frequency, right? So if we were to actually pluck the structure, it would oscillate back and forth at a certain period or, or frequency. So it's very constant. And we need to make sure that we tune the tune mass damper or tune sloshing damper to have a frequency. So that pendulum wants to swing at a certain frequency that's dependent on the length of the pendulum. So the length of the cables. And so we tune it so that the frequency of that pendulum is close to the frequency of the building. If they're very far apart, then you don't have a tune mass damper. You just have an expensive hunk of steel sitting at the top of the building, you know, or a tank of water. So the tuning is a critical component of it. With regards to the attraction on a tune mass damper, has anyone done an aquarium with sloshing dampers? Maybe they can monetize that. When I was in grad school, I had some colleagues joke because I was testing tune sloshing dampers on a shake table. And they would joke and say, when you come in one morning, Shane, there's going to be some piranhas in that tank for you. Never happened. But uh, there's all sorts of attractions that people have, have mentioned over the years. Obviously, Type A 101, there's a few other dampers you can actually see that are on display uh, in a few other parts of the world as well. And we talked about high rises. What about bridges? I feel those would be different types of motion control. How do you deal with bridges and, and their structural dynamics? So for bridges, the most common issue that we see is, is often in pedestrian bridges because they're relatively lightweight, like slender structures. So people walking across the bridge causes the deck of the bridge to bounce up and down. There can actually be lateral motion as well. And we can control both of those using two mass damper types of systems. So the physics stays the same, but we just you know kind of take the problem and rotate it. So instead of having a pendulum that swings to oppose the sway motion, Although for lateral motion, you could use a pendulum that swings to uh, stop the, the lateral motion of a bridge deck if that's a problem. Most often it's a vertical motion and we end up taking basically, you can picture like a mass situated on springs. So now it's just bouncing up and down. And so the physics is the same. Someone walks across the bridge, the bridge deck bounces up and down, and then you have this mass that's underneath the bridge deck and it's kind of bouncing as well, only it's lagging behind the motion of the structure. And it's actually applying forces that are basically counteracting the forces of the people walking. And so we install these in a lot of pedestrian bridges. Uh, we install them in floors too. So shopping malls, even airports, so you've got kind of large open spaces that are relatively, let's say, lightweight. You know, if you're in a shopping mall or in an airport, you can often stand in a spot. And when someone walks by, you can feel the floor bouncing a little bit. So it's not just bridges, but yeah, there's a lot of vertical tune mass dampers out there as well. And they are generally a lot smaller though. So we can hide, you know, underneath a floor, typically, you know, you might not know you walk across the floor and underneath there, there might be a TMD that's on the order of, you know, a few hundred pounds to a couple of tons to resist your motion. So they're orders of magnitude smaller than the big dampers you see in, in tall buildings.
Yeah, they matter. I remember, yeah, it was, uh, it was smaller, but it makes a difference because I remember when I was sitting in for one of my engineering exams, we were in a big hall on the second floor in some big conference room building. And we're all sitting there and we're taking our tests and the proctors, you know, they'd walk around, but every time they would walk around, I would get nauseous as I was sitting there because the floors would bounce up and down and I'm taking my test and I'm getting dizzy just because they were walking around. I was like, we're the mass steppers here. But that just reminded me of that. Since I'm a structural dynamics, structural control nerd, now when I find a bridge and I can feel it vibrating, I must bounce up and down to see how much I can get it going. You know, it drives my wife nuts. She's just like, there he goes again. But uh, yeah, it, it can be fun. I was going to ask with the floor system ones, can you explain like a little bit more about what those would look like? What do they look like if you fit them in the floor system and what are they made out of and how do they attach kind of a stuff? You won't see them. They're tucked away. So you can imagine a floor. Often when we design them, they're basically positioned spanning between floor beams or maybe even attached to floor beams. The simplest type of design you can kind of imagine is, you know, we have some that are very simple. You basically have a pivot you attach to the web of a floor beam, and then you have a lever arm, and then you've got a mass, and you've got a spring underneath that mass that is like resting on the lower flange of that girder or that floor beam. And so you walk through, and obviously that thing can bounce up and down. We do have a little shock absorber on the end as well, so it can bounce up and down. So that's kind of the simplest kind of, we often call it like a hammer style, because it's just kind of like bouncing up and down and moving like a hammer, I guess. There's other types, you know, we've got some that are uh, just a mass sitting on helical springs that will be sitting on some sort of uh, structure that we designed to span between floor beams, but they're all tucked away, fairly narrow profile that the public's not really going to know they're there unless someone were to pull down a ceiling tile or go exploring in the structure. How do engineers sort of demonstrate the effectiveness of these devices in like real world scenarios? And I mean, I'm sure that's like a huge part of getting people to understand like their significance and how they're going to help in the performance or the experience of the person that's in the building. Like, how does that all work? Basically, anytime we install a damper, we'll go to site and we'll take full-scale measurements. So the actual structure, whether it's a floor or a tall building or, or whatever the case might be. So if it's a tall building, let's say, we'll go, we'll head up to the top where the damper is and we'll put down on the floor up there some accelerometers, right? So those are devices that measure acceleration. They're very sensitive and you can measure the motion of the tower. So even if it's a very, very light wind day outside, these devices are sensitive enough that they can pick up the very small motions of the building. And then we'll typically take an accelerometer, another one, and put it on top of the TMD so you can measure the motion of the TMD as well. Or if it's a tuned sloshing damper, we have devices we can put in the tank that will measure the uh, height of the waves in the tank. And then what we do is we monitor the building. So if we're fortunate and it's a windy-ish day, we can measure the interaction or we measure the interaction between the tower and the damper, right? We can basically see how they're both responding. And with that, we can basically calculate, you know, this is the amount of motion reduction that you're getting. This is the amount of damping or energy dissipation that this damping system is adding to the tower. So we do that for all the dampers that we do. Most of the time, the weather doesn't cooperate with us and we show up to site for a tuned mass damper and uh, it's not moving. You know, mechanical systems, we design them to have very low friction but there's always a tiny bit of friction in them. And so you show up and if it's not windy at all outside, 
then the damping system isn't moving. And so we kind of go in the reverse. So we can connect up chains and some pulleys to the tune mass damper and we can pull it. You know, we might pull it a couple of feet or even a meter and then we release it. And then that TMD swings back and forth and that swinging mass gets the building to start to move. You know, we can measure two or three millijes of motion in the building sometimes. So people can't feel that, but we can certainly measure it. And so we're kind of driving in the opposite direction. Normally the wind hits the building, that drives the building and that drives the building, drives the TMD. Here we use the TMD to drive the building, but we measure that interaction between them and we can basically back calculate to confirm we're getting the performance that we're expecting out of that system. So it always involves monitoring of the structure and the TMD to make sure that things are interacting. They're playing with each other as they should in terms of that lag and that motion and, uh, and the other math involved that I won't go into the details of. Before you design it, you pretty much have to get the physics right. And then you can verify that your design works in field. That's right. That's what was cool about, yeah, this is engineering. We're not doing a test and then testing it until it fails. It's no, we get the math right. You get the engineering right. And then you verify it. So that's what's so cool about engineering. It's doing things that we can't really test, but based on the engineering principles, it works. Yeah, we always demonstrate performance to prove, but trust, but verify, you know, so we're going in there and we're, the client's trusting us and then we're going to go and we're going to prove that uh, what we're doing is functioning the way it's intended and they do, they work. What's the maintenance on these? Is that a lot or is it pretty minimal? It's pretty minimal. They are passive systems, so they don't require external power. There are other types of structural control devices, active mass dampers, where they do require external power. But the ones that we deal with in general don't require external power, but we do have maintenance. We recommend keeping an eye on things. So for a tune sloshing damper, usually it's pretty simple. We tell the maintenance team, hey, once a month, go, you pop open the hatch to this tank, you look inside, you know, the water level should be sitting at this level. It shouldn't change. If it's higher or lower, that means water's getting into or out of the tank and that's a flag. You should investigate. Now, we've never seen any issues with the waterproofing after we've commissioned the damper. You know, that's it's dealt with. They test it. They verify it's working. If it needs corrective action, they do that. And then we commission the damper and we've never seen any leak develop, you know, a year or two down the road. But that's something we want them to check. They're also checking for, you know, there's some metallic elements in the tanks. So we have baffles or paddles to add turbulence and damping. It's just looking in there. Is there any excessive corrosion? You know, if it looks like the marine grade paint is starting to wear down or, or cause some corrosion, that needs to be corrected. And then lastly, it's just looking and seeing at the water. All right, is there any microbial growth? You need to shock the tank every once in a while to make sure you don't have algae or anything growing in that tank. And generally, that's not an issue either because it's not like a pool exposed to the sun. Once you close the hatch, there's like zero light getting in there. So there's no reason for anything to want to grow. So we've never really had an issue with that either. For the tune mass dampers, they're, they're machines, they're mechanical systems, they're passive machines, but they're mechanical devices. And so every few years, generally, we would send a team of, uh, you know, a person or two down and they would do a quick inspection lasting maybe a day or so where they're going around looking for wear items, looking, have any bolts that are, you know, undergoing fluctuating loads, have they loosened off? Is there any excessive corrosion? Most of the time, the most sensitive and critical devices are those viscous damping devices or the shock absorbers where you're kind of, hey, you have a piston, you're driving fluid through it. So we're looking for, are there any signs of wear on the seals? Is there any excessive leakage? You know, there's always a bit of leakage in these items, but is there anything excessive? 
And so it's fairly maintenance-free devices, but we, of course, we do recommend keeping an eye on it just so you can catch something early if there is any problem that creeps up. Most of these you are saying are being used for like, not necessarily like the structural abilities of the building, but to make it more comfortable for the people inside of it. How does that play into like when these are installed in terms of like construction sequence? Is it something then that can go in at the very end because it's really just important before it's occupied or how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a nuanced answer. So usually we can commission them finally. We, when we commission them, it'll be towards the very end where the building's typically largely occupied, right? Because the top of the building is moving the most. And if you're worried about occupant comfort, which we usually is the is the thing we're most concerned about, then it's the people at the top of the building who are going to feel that motion the most. And they're usually not moved in yet. So we always commission the dampers and make sure they're functioning before the, you know, the top whatever half of the building is moved in, but it's not uncommon for the bottom half to be occupied while we carry on. And some projects, you know, some of the super tall buildings around the world where even on construction days, when the building's under construction, we've seen issues where the building's moving enough that it's causing the elevators to slow down, as we discussed earlier, or even stop in some cases. And they say, hey, can you guys come down here? We're not fully done with the, uh, the construction of the building, but it's really hindering the construction effort because, you know, people are getting trapped in elevators and we're having to override safeties and all that sort of thing. So we can sometimes go down and we'll commission the damper. So the damper is installed already. It's just not released so it can swing or, or water's not in the tank so it can slosh. We'll go down and we'll do like a pre-commissioning where we roughly tune it so that it's still providing performance. It's still reducing the motion of the building, even though it's just to help the construction carry on. So it, uh, the devices are installed in the building before the crane's taken off the high-rise building for sure, but it's not necessarily commissioned until later stages, I guess is the answer to your question. So if you do that, then you would install it earlier in the construction sequence, but then once everything's closed up, everything's sort of like final, you would go back and sort of retune it. Is that? That's correct. Yep. Right on. I do have one final question for you. What piece of advice would you offer to aspiring engineers who are interested in pursuing a career in similar to you in structural dynamics and motion control? It's a very exciting field. Like I've had a lot of fun today. I hope it shows through talking about this subject. So it's quite a bit of fun. So I'd say, you know, I'd encourage you to go and do it. Probably a graduate degree is a good idea. If you're a young engineer or if you're still an undergrad, I would say that on the team that I work with, most folks have a master's or a PhD in this stuff. And the reason for that is, you know, structural dynamics, maybe there's a course on it in at an undergrad level in a structural program, but there's probably not any discussion of structural control. And so it's really more taught at the graduate level. That's where I got introduced to it in any sort of detail. As engineers, we like to simplify things. So you don't generally teach undergrads stuff that if you go to the code on this, any dynamic topic, typically... They skip the interesting to me dynamic bits and they just say, here's the input. There's a bunch of dynamics going on in the background. Here's a simplified equation for the output. And they kind of miss the middle step that I find most interesting. Normally, of course, it says here's a simplified procedure. And then here's the dynamic analysis you could also do if you want to, but it doesn't describe how to do it. And for that reason, I think it's a fairly niche thing where probably getting a graduate degree would be a, a good place to start. Find a, a professor or someone who can supervise you who's working in this field of structural dynamics and structural control. There are certainly a number out there. I think it'd be a fun career ahead of you.
Yeah, it definitely shines through in how you talk about it. it. Sounds like you have fun doing what you do. So I definitely do. Yeah, I wanted to commend you on explaining that stuff without even visuals. So that was really impressive too. So thanks for doing that and sharing these stories. It's pretty cool. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as any links or resources or websites mentioned during the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.